is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. As always, your host Brandon, joined by my co-host at Chelsea Youth. We've got Phil here for uh, a monthly breakdown of all things academy, and on this one. Uh, Phil, we instead of just you know kind of answering questions, maybe going over players and results, we felt like on these longer updates we could actually go deeper and maybe like do a little bit more of an educational twist on this. So we decided to just kind of look at the youth academy structure in England as a whole and kind of explain how youth academies in England work because it's very different, especially to us in the United States. It is, yeah, and it's constantly evolving, but it's it's useful to be able to take an opportunity to step back and look at what it is, how it came to be, and what it might look like in the years to come and how all of that comes together to affect Chelsea. It is going to be a good one. So again, we're going to be talking about the Youth Academy overview in all of England, and obviously we'll specifically drill into Chelsea's academy and the role that that plays within the club and the bigger uh, hierarchy. Then don't worry, we will give some player-specific updates uh, and some of the questions that you've sent in, as always. So, look, the easiest way to get your questions in is through Patreon, so head to our Discord server if you can. But otherwise, Phil, right away, just getting two foot, two feet stuck in, the, the overview in England. Um, so, for all of you, we'll link this in the description. Um, there is a program called Elite Player Performance Plan that is rolled out at the national level. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. It governs the high-level professional um, development of youth football in England. Gotcha. Obviously, an FA program. Um, and the idea is to make an even playing field, or is this to kind of give... Because there's, I guess you say, this this kind of lays out the plan of if you want to run an academy that benefits the country of England, this is how you should do it. It's it's actually pretty prescriptive of like what to do. Yeah, it's prescribed predominantly for the benefit of the England national team. But in, within that, there are agendas and debates as to who it's ultimately benefiting. So it kicked in in 2011 um, and kind of implemented in 2012. So we're right around the 10-year mark of this thing happening. Um, I guess kind of what, I guess maybe how far back have you kind of really been specializing on youth academies and that'll kind of give us an idea of how much of this plan you've really seen grow or not grow. <laughs> uh, I first, first really got into watching the uh, Chelsea Academy in sort of 2006, but this all really goes back to 1997 when uh, the former Leeds manager, uh, Howard Wilkinson, uh, published a, a document called the Charter for Quality, which was designed at the time to try to bring English football up to modern standards and to advance the development of English talent by introducing academies and handing the development of the young players over to the clubs exclusively. They previously ran what was the, known as the YTS scheme, the youth training scheme for school leavers who were apprentices in name and in and in action. And so the FA ran a centralised elite programme for selected players from those academies. They'd go off to Lillishaw Hall, um, as a collective, like uh, the Clairefontaine Academy in France. And they would be brought together uh, for the benefit of the England national team. Howard Wilkinson thought, no, we need to hand that power over to the clubs. It's going to expand the pool of talent. It's going to improve and professionalize everybody across the board. So they did that in 1997, and that sort of worked. But then the national team weren't getting further ahead in tournaments, and they didn't qualify for Euro 2008. They won one match at the 2010 World Cup and they were humbled by Germany in the knockout stages. 
Uh, and that was sort of when everybody came back together and it was okay we need to reform things again we need they they were trying to imitate the the german model the das reboot after germany had gone through the 2002 world cup in shame and that's how the ecpp came about it was put together by some big names at the Premier League. So Neil Barth was integral in the development of it. Brian McClare, who was Neil Barth's equivalent at Manchester United. Ivan Gazidis was involved. And then there were representatives from Wolves and Birmingham, Aston Villa and people at the Premier League. And it all came together to try to be the successor to the Charter for Quality. The launch coincided with England National Development Centre at St George's Park opening 15 years late uh, or 15 years after Wilkinson had proposed the idea. And it was put together, started launched, voted in in 2011, launched in 2012 with the Qatar 2022 World Cup as the, as the the target. Ten years time for England to try to win that. Okay, but that's interesting. The U.S. did something similar. Just for a comparison, we we centralized our youth national team into a residency program. So if you were in the national team pool, you lived in Bradenton, Florida. Uh, part of the time they attended IMG Academy, then they trained uh, exclusively with U.S. soccer. But they've now broken that up, you know, and they've relied on MLS academies to house their best talent. And then they bring them together under the FIFA dates. So um, uh, classic little brother America trying to fall in the footsteps of England, Phil. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's something that everyone eventually will do because it diversifies talent pool it gives it puts the power in the hands of so many other individuals and clubs and organizations that you can't organize yourself as a governing body uh quite so effectively and so it's it's undeniably been successful to an extent in england but there's an undercurrent a narrative that by design then it's meant to push the elite talent to the top of the club game for the benefit of the national team so we'll get into the categorization system in a moment but essentially you want to push the best youngsters to the best clubs and then have a trickle down economy towards all of the other clubs eventually if you're bringing in an elite talent at 14 15 16 years old to a chelsea or a manchester city then somebody falls off the bottom of the list and they go to the next club down and it happens and theoretically strengthens everyone's academy pushes the talent around the country to other teams everybody gets stronger by association but some clubs will argue that hasn't been the case some some clubs will be happy that the way it's gone over the last 10 years or so sure there's always winners and losers with everything um so we just kind of have to manage that a little bit so what about the categorization system and competition structure i think we've started to kind of break this out a little bit you know the u23s having a national league uh, then the the younger you get, more of like a north south regional league. But from the E Triple P, as it is so affectionately known by, uh, how does this kind of set up? Every academy is audited by the Premier League. Uh, they're graded on up to ten factors: so their historic productivity from the academy, their training facilities, their coaching, their education and welfare provisions, their investment. They, all, everything goes into a grading criteria, and then the clubs are grouped together by their overall grade and then categorized accordingly for benefit of competition there are four categories one being the highest fourth being the lowest you can technically not have a grade if you don't run an academy uh, brentford don't run one wickham don't run one um and the higher the grade you're given and the category you get into the more freedom you have to go about your youth development so category one teams are allowed to limit uh, unlimited national recruitment from under 12 age group if they provide a full-time training model we'll get into that in a bit as well and it provides for up to eight and a half thousand coaching hours over the course of that player's development career 
you lose 2,000 of those hours at Category 2 level and you can't recruit. Nationally, you have to recruit from within 90 minutes travel distance of your training base. Clubs can get creative with that, but it's pretty much uh, adhered to for the most part. You go to Category 3, you get less coaching time, and then in Category 4, you don't run a program for under-9s to under-16s, and you start at uh, under-17 levels. So Huddersfield Town run that. They they opted out of Category 2 a few years ago to a similar model that Brentford used to run, but they they they, they, were, they, they do run an under-17 and under-19 team that are involved with the EFL Alliance, which runs below the Premier League. So at the Category 1 level, you now have 28 teams. It started out at 22. A couple over the years have dropped out. Bolton dropped out early on, obviously, as they fell from the Premier League down to the fourth tier. Swansea dropped out a couple of years ago, but in the time in, in between, you've had um, Brighton have come up, Leeds have come up, Crystal Palace have come up. And because of the money at the top end of the English game getting into the Premier League, it establishes you and allows you to invest in your academy at no expense to financial fair play, no cost. It's all free money to invest into that. So we now have 28 Category 1 teams and I think 17 Category 2 teams. And that dictates the games program. Uh, predominantly under 18 level, where it's split regionally. It does govern it at under 23 level, but then we have the Premier League 2, which is competitive within itself within two divisions of 14 teams. Yeah, and uh, you know, to that point, right, is it's interesting to see who invests in it and who doesn't. So, like, why would a Birmingham City or a Blackburn, you know, or, or Derby County before they went administration, sadly, recently, you know, these teams that aren't in the Premier League, Middlesbrough, but they're they're funding their academies at a at a higher level because it costs quite a bit more to run a level one. I think as you kind of connect the dots. The reason that they would allow, in theory, quotation marks, um, is that they have a program built that can be more successful. So they for, therefore they feel like if Chelsea scout nationally and a kid comes from far away, he'll be taken care of much better than a category, you know, two, three, four is the theory. Right. So, again, why would like a Blackburn spend all this extra money when they're not in the Premier League? I, to me, like an academy spend would go in line with where you land within the football pyramid in, in England. It does to an extent. Now, Blackburn were one of the founding Category 1 members uh, and have been there ever since. They've always had uh, a strong academy foundation to club. And Birmingham have recently acquired Category 1 status after spending most of their time as Category 2. But though they they too, they've produced they've produced Jack Butland. They've produced Damari Gray. They've produced players over the years. And most recently, and possibly best of all, Jude Bellingham. So... There's been some controversy at Birmingham with off-the-field stuff and finances at first-team level, and there, there was talk sort of this time last year that they were going to scrap their academy entirely, and then they swung all the way back in the other direction and have gone up to Category 1 level. A little goes a long way. So an, an estimated high spend for a Category 1 team is somewhere in the region of five to £6 million pounds a season to run a Category 1 academy. Some clubs with bigger budgets, Chelsea and Manchester City at the top of the thing, will spend more than that because they can. There is no spending limit in academy football. Whereas by comparison at Category 2, you're expected to spend 1 to 2 million a season. So that's predominantly why Swansea dropped down when they were relegated from the Premier League and had some financial issues. And it wouldn't surprise me, depending on what happens with future ownership, if Derby County were unfortunately forced to drop from Category 1 because there's a, an immediate saving for them there. The big spend comes with the employment of staff and the requirements you have to undertake to be a Category 1 academy. You have to have certain staff in certain roles across the board from under 9s all the way up to under 23s. 
you have to have or demonstrate the development of a permanent indoor facility. You have to have a, a main match pitch with stands or sheltered seating for spectators. It's all designed to make an accommodating environment for players, families, scouts, agents, everybody who's in and around the academy game to professionalise it, to make it a high-level experience, which in turn feeds back into the development of the player. You can argue that it was successful to whatever level in the decades and decades before all this came in, when it was players out on the pitch and people standing there watching in the rain and whatever. The idea is that with so much money in and around the game, invest it in academies, give the young players everything they need on paper to be the best versions of themselves they can be. So you talked about some of the benefits, right? Obviously, there needs to be risk reward for this investment. Um, National recruitment is a big one. Is it really national, is. Is national really bigger than just England? Because, you know, I remember when Billy Gilmore came over at the age of 16. That was pre-Brexit. And so nah. this is something that a lot of English academies are now having to adapt to. Uh, there were clubs, um, particularly for the likes of example, West Brom and Brighton, who would use the Republic of Ireland as a, a market that they could go to and bring players over every summer. And that, because the Republic of Ireland are not part of the UK, Great Britain, uh, they are still in the EU those players are not able to come quite so easily now. For example, the Ireland under-17s are playing the European under, uh, European Championship qualifiers at the minute. And for the first time in my memory, at least, they don't have an English-based player in their squad. They've got uh, players in Serie A. Kevin Zeff, he's just going to join Inter Milan, despite having interest from England. Because the clubs would have to jump through several hoops to even stand a chance of getting these players. There's a calculator that all the clubs have used. They put in the players' criteria and these international representation and everything else. You have to get past a certain point threshold to be able to get them a work permit. And for the most part, that's not going to happen. So clubs are now having to get more and more creative in their recruitment, uh, which is why at under-23 level, for example, you've seen Chelsea bring in Jaden Worm and Declan Frith and Brian Belongo from non-league teams over the last three to six months. Uh, as another source of, uh, of of potential talent ID. What it really will mean in practice is that the bigger and richer clubs will just pillage the smaller clubs even more than they were doing before because they've been forced to, to narrow the scope of their market. So if there was a player at Exeter, for example, Chelsea have been down there and gotten players from them before and Ethan Ampadu, but there's been others that they've lost out on. Ben Crisani's at Aston Villa, but Exeter have got a fantastic academy. They don't have the money to advance up to category two, category one. So they're always going to be at risk of the big clubs coming in. Um, and so when you have the likes of Aston Villa and Leeds, who've got a lot of money behind them since they got promoted to the Premier League and have sought to put themselves to the top of the f- uh, food chain in academy football, they'll go in, they'll be heavily recruiting. And the smaller clubs don't have much ability to, f- to punch back under E-Triple-P, which is one of the the heavy criticisms of it, that they've been strong-armed into accepting this and that the compensation that they get for their young players is not as much as they'd like. Uh, Personally, I've always thought, well, how do you put a price tag on a a 14-year-old's head, 15-year-old's head? If you want three, four, five million pounds for a 14-year-old, how responsible is that? We understand that you've put time, money, effort into developing him and maybe there's a, a finer middle ground. But the East Triple B standardised compensation for these players based on the number of appearances they end up making in senior football, incrementally pay, paying them through the, the, the 
up to 100 senior appearances. Yeah. So, yeah, it's almost like kind of reminds me of the Bundesliga, right? Where like the best talent always end up at the top two clubs in the country because they don't recruit across Europe. They really do a lot of their recruiting in Germany. Same thing here. Now that the academies have been, I guess, blocked out of Europe because of the Brexit deal, they're just going to focus and go deep into England and, and snap up as many as they can, which you could probably argue is, is a backfiring of, of the system. Um, you, you touched on the full-time training program from the ages of 14 and up, and this being a huge requirement. What does, what does that mean? What is a full-time training program? It means that for select players, uh, each academy the club assumes responsibility for their secondary education so it initially was allowed for players uh, aged in their age 15 season and age 16 season and was extended a couple of years ago to their age 14 season so the last three years of their formally required education in the country the club can take over it which means that they can either uh, build a partnership with a local school manchester city have a a, a partnership with a local private school they pay all the, all the tuition fees uh, regardless of whether that player gets released before the age of 16, that's part. That's a prerequisite of the uh, full-time training model. Chelsea have an association with a nearby school where the teachers are on site at Cobham. Uh, there's a certain number of hours in the week that they're required to do schoolwork, but it means that the players are at the training ground Monday through Friday. Uh, they'll do their classroom work and they'll do the training work. And it replaces the day release program where players would be with their schools Monday to Friday, Monday and Friday and a half day Tuesday, Thursday. And then they travel back and forth into the academy on the middle of the week for that time. It basically stops the players having to go to and from different locations and puts them on site in one place. What it does mean in many cases um, is that those 14 year olds will leave home leave their families, if especially if they're not close by to the club's training ground, and move in with a local Diggs family uh, in, in the same way that scholars will. Uh, there'll be a senior teammate of theirs there to sort of try to ease the transition. But it, it's genuinely not easy for any family or any 14-year-old to leave home. I mean, it's hard for anyone who's going at 16. It's hard for people who go to university at 18 or whatever age. Uh, so it's getting younger and younger and there's some criticism of a system that is sort of you, you lose your youth to the system and to the churn uh, so you can understand the benefits of the full-time training model for the clubs and for the players who believe that it's the best opportunity that they're going to have to forge a professional career whether it's at that club or any of the other clubs in the game uh that's been the biggest change to the system in recent years it's allowing the players on site all the time and essentially being a scholar two three years early yeah i remember when chelsea did this i just looked it up uh, uh a day in the life of billy gilmore and this is three years ago so when he was still a teen which he is um <laughs> uh but they put it out on youtube and that you know he was he was living like in these apartments had a roommate you know and he talked about you know, how much time he spent at Cobham. So like in this case, Chelsea have like actual educators on site that are running them through, as you guys put it, maths, science, English, things like that, history. Yeah, absolutely. The staple requirements at GCSE level education in England, uh, they have uh, those, those core subjects and there'll be, uh, there'll be at least one modern language on there, for example, and then various other options. Uh, they are required to 
continue their education to an extent as a scholar um they some players will do a levels some players will do a btech or a similar further education but then when you sign your professional contract you're you're a professional footballer at that point you i believe no, are no longer required to continue it some players do some players go above and beyond there have been players at chelsea over the years ruben samet uh richard nati who've done some some very impressive further education uh, some like jack wakeley who who did some stuff uh, in, in investments and and forex and trading uh diversifying their interests at a very young age so chelsea as far as i'm aware have impressive grades that come out of their association with glynn school they, they've got a program that is successful but like everything else in the academy is under constant review as we move towards the future so i this is early 2000s and we were like just learning about this phil and you can keep this short you can just even give me a yes or no but the joke that was being made was in the manchester united academy because you had the class in 99 right it was all right history time this is italy this is the san siro ac milan play here let's watch a match <laughs> and it was like not like really an education it was everything tied back to football but like when i read the e triple p i mean there, like you said there are actual you know academic regulations it's not you know oh we're gonna teach them to be a football and only a footballer these days thankfully i would say that is probably one of the bigger aspects that is advanced with this program absolutely and it's like i said at the start it's part of the auditing process so somebody from the premier league will spend a week to 10 days at the academy seeing everything that they do and having access to their entire record so it's not just like you could put on a show for these guys for a week and then go back to whatever else was going on beforehand there's there's a lot of oversight from the premier league here and for the most part clubs that are granted category one status deserve it i my personal inclination is that there are too many category one clubs i understand the idea that you want to encourage more academies to reach and attain the higher standards but there comes a point like right now where two-thirds of the the top 40 50 clubs in the country are of category one status you end up potentially diluting the pool and then you'll have to to break off again into a category one plus for the, for the very elite if you don't have a final balance and, and it comes at the expense of the games program for the category two teams who in their by their own right produce quality players and send players off and becoming linda internationals themselves mm -hmm. if you if you keep taking clubs away from that level and category three teams who are typically league one and league two teams third and fourth tier that don't have the money to invest to reach those levels you end up with maybe a dozen teams that are stagnating because their games program is reduced and is no longer providing the challenge they need so we're, we're coming up to sort of 10 years under ETPP, and it'll be interesting to see any proposed changes to it in the the next 18 months or so all right well we'll definitely be there to cover it uh hey look if you want to nerd out on this a little bit more and dive deeper phil you actually have two uh like are i guess are these books that people should be yeah, reading they are both books Four uh michael books? Michael Calvin wrote a very uh, seminal book, No Hunger in Paradise. There was also a television documentary produced off the back of it. Uh, that was done a couple of years ago. And re more recently, Ryan Baldy wrote The Dream Factory. And both books center around the experiences of academy staff, academy personnel, their families, and the players, and what life can be like 
uh, on the positive and in, in, in many cases, the negative side of the academy, the criticisms of it, that the recruitment starts far too young. Players at the age of four and five are being inducted into pre-academies and pre-academy elite squads. Uh, and the, the, the discussion and, and discourse around player welfare and the aftercare and the system churn, which has unfortunately manifested itself in the, the loss of life in some cases of players who've been spat out by the system and found nowhere to go. It's been a very hot topic over the last couple of years, um, and there, there are there are serious questions that some academies need to answer about how they look after players who they choose to release, be it at 10, 12, 14, or 16. And so these are two very good books to, to, to broaden your understanding of how the academy system can look in England. And, and and there's recommended reading from there. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have links in the description. Jake is on it. I've already pulled them up. Uh, and The No Hunger in Paradise, that is only $9.99 in the U.S. if you get it on Kindle and electronic version. So uh, we're going to take our ad break, though, because I want to hurry up and get us over to what does all this mean for Chelsea? Obviously, we're Chelsea podcast. Phil is Chelsea youth. Uh, so we're going to connect the dots back to our club. So thank you to the sponsors for financially supporting the show. We'll be right back. All right, so like we were hinting before the break, with all that in mind, where does the Chelsea Academy stand as 2021 draws to a close? Kind of where are we at? So I guess, Phil, what what is Chelsea's planning process? I'm assuming they're going to say, right, they have like a one-year, five-year, 10-year vision for their academy. Um, I'm sure that they kind of give themselves a rank of where they're at hey, are we where we want to be? What's the next level? So I guess like you kind of pick where you want to start with how Chelsea's Academy falls into the EPPP and, and how they view it. I think it's been a very interesting year for the Academy on several fronts. It started with the exit of Frank Lampard, who's been the biggest champion of Academy graduates at first team level in a generation. They won the Champions League with a core of Academy graduates involved throughout the tournament and making key contributions on the pitch in the final. They had players representing their countries at the business end of the European Championships. And then there was the the famous academy exodus of the summer, a dozen players leaving permanently of their own volition uh, because they were, they, they saw their fortunes lie elsewhere. So the, the academy has achieved great things culminating in that Champions League win. And now you you move forward. You move forward and say, right, how do we maintain that? How do we keep the flow of players going into the first team? How do we keep the quality up so that the first team are going to want to pick these players? And how do we prevent our best players from wanting to leave in the same way that Tammy Abraham, Fakur, Tamori, Lewis Bate, Tino Livramento, and everybody else did this past summer? Gurhi, still upset. Mark Gurhi, exactly. <laughs> and and, and there, are, there are players who, who may yet follow them. That all comes in it's a much bigger picture than just what the academy can do but as neil bath said over the summer they will not rest on their laurels they are continuing to try to innovate they're looking forward to what they call vision 2030 which is essentially laying the land for what they what and how they want to achieve between now and 2030 for the best part of the next decade so the way they've operated for the last five to ten years is they want to position themselves as the club that young players in england want to be at they want whether it's for a path into the first team or as the best finishing school in the country. Uh, previously, the best in Europe, but recruiting outside of England is much harder now. 
they want to be that club. They want to be that club at every age group. They are still surprisingly, by their own admission, successful in recruiting from areas in and around London where you would expect their London rivals to be dominant. So if you go over to East London and North East London, you'd expect Tottenham and West Ham in particular to have a dominant presence in primary schools, in in, in social in sports clubs, in areas where young talent is found those clubs should be dominating the region. It's their, it's their patch. But Chelsea are still getting players in from every area of London. Chelsea is still casting their net wide. They have one of the most comprehensive scouting setups in the Southeast and indeed across England. And they're getting players in at those age groups. They're getting talent that they want across the board. The next step is to make sure that they are retaining that talent at key age groups. And that's not just the the, the departures from development squad and first team level from this summer. Uh, famously, Jamal Musiala chose to go to Bayern Munich a couple of years ago. Sam Ling Jr. went to Juventus. It's happened sporadically. It happens to every club. So Chelsea are on, on the understanding that as long as they make their best offer, and they made a very generous offer to Musiala, but... There was the the dual nationality involved there from a, a kid who was born and raised in Germany, then spent the next decade in England, played for both national teams. It wasn't a case of seeing lack of a pathway at Chelsea. It was more that there was a very good opportunity to go to Germany, go to Bayern Munich. And this all comes together with Chelsea looking to keep their place at the top of academy football in England at a time where it's more competitive than it's ever been. More clubs have more money to invest in category one status and to recruit across the board. Chelsea went uh, out this summer. They tried to get players that went elsewhere for their own reasons. It's it's an interesting point in the, in the cycle for an academy that has been incredibly successful on the pitch for most of the last decade, five consecutive FA Youth Cups two UEFA Youth League titles, domestic champions of the under-18 and under-23 league on multiple occasions. That success hasn't been there in the trophy cabinet for a couple of seasons now. And that's you're always going to have a drop-off. You're never going to win trophy after trophy, year after year after year after year after year, after year unless you are in a, a one-club state or a one-club country. So, so I, it, it's, it's all gearing together to try to make sure that they are constantly competing for those honours and back at the very top of every level of academy football that they can be at while providing the first team with the option to keep picking high-level talent de- developed within the academy. So picking up two things. One, you talk about the cost of the academy, right? I mean, the amount of money funded through academy player sales, specifically this last summer, shit, that'll fund the academy for another what? 10 20 years like if you just look at it that yeah. way it obviously does. It goes, even if the money goes into buying lukaku yeah. or whatever the, the money it goes around the club and the and for a club like chelsea if you want to spend 10 million a year on the academy it's small change it's not small change to every club but for a club like chelsea it is the academy will never lack for funding it won't need to sell players to continue to go on for as long as abramovich is the club owner but it's it a is nice highly it's profitable a, it's highly profitable. It's it's the club's most profitable arm. We've seen this summer that the the first team castoffs as their so called uh, Danny Drinkwater can't sell him. Ross Barkley can't sell him. You 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 might get one or two gone per summer. They got a fee for Zappa Costa this summer, but the academy has generated a hundred million pound of, of of profit this this year. And some people will be extremely proud of that because it's enabled the club to go and buy Lukaku. Some will be disappointed by the manner in which those players have left. Yes, there are four or five of them with buyback clauses. You're spending 200 million to bring them back if you do. And that's 200 million to bring back players that you had 
for a cost of a transfer cost of zero to start with. And then that means you have to sell 200 million worth of youth academy players to get that one. And, and this is where the continues. issue, the cycle continues. But yeah. the problem is, if you can't demonstrate a pathway, and if you struggle to continue to develop that level of talent, now, I, I, with the best will in the world, Chelsea will be able to do this. We know how talented the academy staff, the academy talent ID, and the academy players themselves are but to assume that because you've developed high level talent for 10 years and therefore you will for another 10 years is a little bit of a risk you never want to assume that 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 pipeline and that potential source of income is always going to be there because it could it could it could splinter at any moment and I've seen a lot of discourse this summer that Chelsea are succeeding their academy is all wants to be able to provide players to the first team or sell them for money the academy want to provide 20 percent of the first team squad at stanford bridge that's the being the number one aim to then recognize that they can't get everyone in then to make sure that they have a solid professional career at the highest possible levels but it's more competitive than ever and this is why the vision 2030 is trying to innovate to create and to make sure that they do keep keep bringing through good talent it's just not a guarantee so you talk about some success metrics, obviously providing pathways for these young football or soccer players is number one, right? And, and there's an, a quote from Neil Bath in this one that, that says, you know, we see trophies as a part of player development, but never to the detriment of the individual pathway. And I, I'm going to circle back to the 2010s because that was an interesting period. But if as you touch on how they want to cede 20% of the first team roster, Go back to the Champions League roster that just won in Porto. And it says in this article, Bath himself was in the stands at Estadio do Dragao, along with assistant head of youth development, Jim Frazier, watching out the strong sense of pride as the Blues lifted the trophy for the second time. Quote, it was an incredibly special weekend, he says with a smile. There was a strong academy group there, and they had all played their part. And quote, you have Tino Andrew, you have Callum Hudson-Odoi, Tammy Abraham, Reese James, Billy Gilmore, Andreas Christensen, and Mason Mount all huddled around the trophy with big ears feel. I mean, what, as you kind of say, from a metric of success, that that is one of the, the best. And I think we all kind of talked about at that time, like that young English core at the center of this team. Yeah, that's a photo that's proudly displayed in the academy building now as a recognition of the work they've done and a reminder of the work they want to continue to do. But you can you look at that photo with pride, with, with admiration, but you also look at Tammy's gone. Andrew is gone on loan with an option to buy. Billy's on loan at Norwich. There's questions about Hudson Odoi's future, and that's that. That leaves you with three out of the seven who've got Mason, solid Christensen, exactly. And Christensen's going to be signing a new contract soon, as we understand it. But immediately you start to say, okay, well, if you could take half of those out within a month of them lifting the trophy, what happens next? Uh, and this is where you're, you, you you sort of is your glass half full or is your half, glass half empty? What do you see for? Gilmore when he returns what do you see for Conor Gallagher next season what do you see for Armando Broja next season is there going to be the same pathway through and you can argue do they deserve it do they not let's I mean, there were particular circumstances we've discussed this numerous times when Lampard came to the club they had a transfer ban you're able to bring in James Mount Abraham who'd had a season in the championship and only Abraham had played in the Premier League before that with his one year at Swansea and and give them the opportunity they needed to develop at the top level. 
And you, you'll, you'll see people saying, OK, Levi Colwell's playing in the championship. Mark he played in the championship last season. It's a big step to go from the championship to a club of Chelsea's level. Those boys did it. And Chelsea qualified for the Champions League at the end of the season. Now, we know that Chelsea's qualified for the Champions League is a minimum requirement. We want them competing for the Premier League title. But you won't know whether Gerhi can do that. You won't know whether Colwell can do that. And indeed, Gallagher, who will have had two Premier League seasons by the end of this campaign, if you don't give them that shot in the first team, if you keep kicking the can down the road, the players will see that and think, no, there's other clubs out there for me. Livermento's already being talked about for an England call-up. And he's played six games for Southampton. Who have not won a game, which but if you caught our match recap, that I'm still confused by that. <laughs> exactly. And he, he his move, as far as he's concerned, has already been justified because yeah, a doubt. he's playing Premier League football. And and there, there will be other players in the academy who are in a similar position to, to Livramento who are thinking, well, that could be me. And if I ask questions about my, my chances at Chelsea, I'm not going to take the risk. Uh, equally... Colwell and Broja signed long-term deals in the summer. There'll be players who think, no, I am going to make it here. I'm going to persevere and I'm going to show that I've got what it takes because I really think that I have a chance. It's not about backing yourself because these players always back themselves. If you think Livermento left Chelsea because he didn't think he could play at this level, look at how he played against Chelsea last time out. The players are looking for an opportunity to play meaningful minutes at the highest possible level as soon as possible because this, this ain't forever. You could be injured tomorrow. Anything could happen. You capitalize on your opportunity now. And I bet a lot of those players would love to be re-signed by Chelsea in the future. We even heard Declan Rice talk about it, which we don't need to get into the whole Declan <laughs> Links conversation. They would do. I always think that the option of a buyback that comes with a player is mostly about convincing that player to come back. And it's easier when that player reaches Chelsea sort of level because then they're clearly moving up to the top of the game. But it comes at such a cost that it, it provides somewhat bad optics. We've seen that there are various reports from, from our friends at The Athletic over the last year that there were people on Chelsea's board, uh, inside Chelsea's boardroom who had doubts about signing Rice because of the optics of releasing an academy player at 14 and signing him back for 80 million. Whether that's true or not, the, the idea exists that you, you go out there and you could have had him for nothing. I think it's a little bit different when you do it with Lukaku because you paid 18 million at the time, which with football market interest probably looks more like 30 million now. And you buy the finished article back five years later. It's it, it, it's a bigger picture and everyone has their own preferences. My own preference is that you, you don't need to spend three times as much to bring the boys back that you had for nothing. But I understand that there are, there are cash flows and, uh, and management issues to work through to position your team at the at Champions League level. So one, I think you talk about youth exodus and, and the summer things. At the end of the day, the academy, that's a success to me. If these players are ready to play in the Premier League, it's then up to Chelsea's kind of first team and f to figure that out if they can fit the the needs of the team or not. But to me, like the the academy, if you're looking at from an academy player development standpoint, are unbelievably like successful. The amount of players that they have playing professionally at all divisions, which is the goal. Obviously, they want to play for Chelsea, but if not, then they want them to play um, is important. Now, my my last question, this is kind of my headliner question that I had ready for you uh, for this entire episode, Phil, is linking back to E-Triple-P and Chelsea's Academy. You said in 2010s, look, we ran the show 
So it's a two-part question. One, do you think that Chelsea's academy is successful because of EPPP, or do you think Chelsea's youth academy is always going to be successful because of the way the club approached it? And then the follow-up question would kind of be, um, again, was no one else paying attention in the 2010s and we just got to like run riot or was their competition Chelsea were just so far ahead of the curve? I think you would have to be kidding yourself if you didn't admit that EPPP played into Chelsea's hands considerably from the outset. And the main reason is because if Neil Bath is an architect of EPPP, then he's got a head start on most of the competition. Yes, there were uh, collaborators from Manchester United, Aston Villa, Birmingham Wolves, whoever. And every club had a vision and oversight of what was going on before it was launched because they were able to vote it in. But by being an architect of it, it lends itself to the argument and the idea that Chelsea wanted this change to come about to their own benefit. And there's, there's nothing wrong with admitting that you want the system to favour your team. It's a competitive environment. It's a competitive professional environment. And you want your club to be at the very top, whether it's in the Premier League, in the Champions League, or the Under-18 Premier League, or the Under-12s International Cup, or whatever. You want to be at the very top because football is a competition. EPPP definitely benefited Chelsea because they were they have the funding. They have Roman Abramovich. They had a brand new training facility. And when you put standards into place to increase the quality of competition across the board, there will always have to be one club that is positioned at the very top from the outset. Chelsea weren't winning youth trophies until 2013-2014. They won the under-21 league under Dermot Drummy. They won the first of their youth cups under Adi Vivash, and they went from there. And success begets success begets success. The players spoke over the years about not wanting to be the team that didn't win the youth cup. They wanted to uphold the standards that had been set by the team from the year before. There's a famous scene in the uh, the changing room after the first or second of the finals against Manchester City where they're interviewing Joe Edwards and Jody Morris and they've got uh, Jacob Maddox and Mason Mount with them. And Maddox and Mount that, that year had been first years playing important roles but not senior roles in that team. And they're already talking 20 minutes after lifting the trophy about those guys having to step up and lead the next season, which they did. So it's undeniable that they were able to position themselves high, but then it's to their credit that they were able to maintain such a long period of success while everybody else was playing catch up pretty quickly. The, comp- the level of competition has only increased over previous years. And now we've hit the point where maybe Chelsea have, I wouldn't say struggled to produce so many good young players, but those players have left academy football quicker because they're they're better at younger ages you've seen Gilmore go straight into the first team at 18 you've seen uh, players go out on loan at 17 and 18 instead of 19 and 20 they're pushing them through the age groups earlier and at some point there's going to be a slight disconnect while everybody else is getting to the level Fulham have won the under 18 South League twice in a row they've got a lot of talent themselves Uh, and we're now at that point where Chelsea want to reassert themselves and it will be interesting to see if any further changes come under EPPP. Well, I think, to your point, it's a very different landscape today than it was maybe the past 10 years. So I think while everyone kind of took the youth academy success for granted, um, this is a great time to start to get plugged in a little bit because it is more competitive, hopefully, to a, 
to to create a more competitive landscape and and to create competition across many teams instead of maybe a few. Uh, but the teams at the top, I mean, there's like the national or like the first team, Phil, like there's a direct correlation between investment and success per usual with most things in life. <laughs> there is. But as we've mentioned already uh, during this discussion, that investment has now got a narrower scope and your competition is growing. There are 27 other Category 1 clubs that, uh, alongside Chelsea and they're all competing within the England English market. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating. The, 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 the transfer window before these Brexit changes came in, Manchester United went out and pillaged Europe for some of the the best young talent that they could bring in at the time because they knew it was their last opportunity to do so. Then the pandemic hit and we're in the first season. We're not quite out of the pandemic yet, either not by a long shot. So there's a lot of different things going on in academy football and clubs are still trying to find their way in this the post-Brexit era. So like Chelsea, when EPPP first came in, whoever adapts quickest and whoever has means to adapt quickest may find that the next three to five years are very advantageous for them. Hopefully it's Chelsea. As always, uh, we'll be covering it to make sure everyone's up to date on that. But hey, we just want to wrap up on a couple of player-specific updates that we got asked about. The first one from Gabriel asked about Gilmore. So Billy Gilmore crushing it for Scotland again. I mean, he had that weird Euros where he ended up getting COVID while with the national team. Uh, sadly, knocked out Mason and Chili B for for a week, you know, while while they had to quarantine their camp. But he's back at it. Then the weird thing, the flip side is, Phil, that Norwich, he started, but now he hasn't really played the last two, three matches. I would know. He's on my fantasy team. Um, and so kind of what, like, what's going on with Billy right now? It's... Pretty interesting to see how the two different teams handle him. Scotland, despite his age and relative inexperience, have basically given him the the keys to the team. They trust him implicitly to run the show in midfield. They know his quality in possession. They know his vision. They know his intensity. Because you can be as good as you want on the ball, but he provides a, a drive to the team. He's always trying to play forward. Norwich are a little bit different. Scotland aren't necessarily going to be favorites in every game that they play. But they can approach games differently because you might have two or three maximum per break. Norwich have had a really tough start to this uh, to the season schedule wise, and they've they've got a team that is still trying to adjust to their their summer activity. They Gilmore was one of three central midfielders that they brought in. They were Matthias Norman and Pierre Lemelu, and they've also switched to a back three at times. So Daniel Farke is clearly trying to see what he's got in his squad to try to give them a kickstart. Now, we we would all love Billy to be playing 38 Premier League games in every knockout game that Norwich have in cup competitions. That's not going to happen. And there is still value in him going there from a perspective where you learn a little bit more about yourself when things aren't going your way, you're not getting into the team. Particularly in Billy's case, lessons to be learned on how you structure yourself out of possession, positionally, your discipline, your eye discipline. You're making sure that you're tracking your runners. Chelsea will dominate possession and Billy will be a big part of that. But there will always be times in games and games during the season where you have to defend in a deeper block. And if you're playing in a three-man midfield at Chelsea in a 4-3-3 or if you're playing in the double sixes under Tuchel, you're going to have to do that. I think there's... 
Still very strong merit to Billy being out on loan this season. Whether it's at Norwich or not, we'll, we'll see between now and January. They've got the option, regardless of whether it's reported that they can call him back or not, or they have an option to call him back. Clubs can always do what they want with their assets. It will come at a cost. You'll have to compensate Norwich for calling him back if you do. But I think we need to give it a little bit of time. Let's see if Norwich's schedule eases up. And we know that Billy's got the quality to help them. It's about everything else at Norwich coming together. Well, again, um, when you're at the bottom of the table, winless as well, uh, you're going to kind of reshuffle the deck and see what you can figure out because it's uh, it's not a lot of time to make, you know, get back on track if if you're at zero points this far into the campaign. Uh, Then the other one is Armando Broja, who's firing Albania to the Euros, potentially all on his own, Uh, scored winners home and away against Hungary. Big game versus Poland on Tuesday, sir. Armando Broja, again, he's at Southampton for those of you who who are Maybe not remembered that. Tough for him to break in there. Yeah, um, I wrote Euros in the the script notes. It's actually the World Cup, so that's my bad. Um, but yeah, he scored winners home and away bomb. against uh, against Hungary recently, <laughs> and he's he's really a dangerous goal scorer for Albania. All of a sudden, I mean, the goal he scored this this past weekend. He's got the ball way out wide on the right by the penalty area. He comes inside. He's trying to drive it, and then from a seemingly no angle produces a world-class finish into the far corner. Now, Albania have managed to hold off Poland so far in England's group for second place, which would be a playoff against another second-place team in the UEFA qualifying zone. Uh, If they can get a result against Poland this midweek, then they're in position to to make the playoffs instead. And that's no mean feat. Poland, remember, have got maybe the best striker in Europe uh, in Robert Lewandowski. So if Broja is managing to produce consistently for his country at a time where he's making important cameo performances for Southampton but Ralph Hasenhutl has said that he needs to do more if he wants to earn regular minutes I don't really know what he's looking for for a team that is yet to win in the Premier League but hey all he can do for his country is to continue doing what he's doing because he is absolutely flying right now and he he'll get more minutes before the end of the season for Southampton we know that but this 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 guy's ascent from two two and a half years ago. He's gone. He tackled every level he can possibly can and come out with flying colours. Uh, I'm not going to write him off from scoring five to ten goals for the rest of this Premier League season. And then it's a very interesting summer next year for Chelsea. Yeah, look, very excited. Chelsea needs striker depth, by the way. So I hope uh, Broja continues to go do it. It's interesting to see these young players. Um, you just, you know, no offense to Albania and Scotland, right? Just less competition. Therefore, these young players can be trusted to go. That is only going to do wonders for their their club team career. You know, the confidence they're going to gain, uh, the minutes they're going to gain, um, you know, the responsibility that they get tactically as well. So uh, really excited. But those are the two we wanted to touch on. Uh, again, overall, Phil, thank you. Thank you so much. Again, just breaking down the academy. I don't think a lot of people realize that it's not Premier League academies versus Premier League academies, that it's actual conscious decision on investment to determine where you land amongst the four tiers of, uh, I guess, academy football. Money makes the world go round. Ah, man. Sounds like a lyric or something. If anything, (laughs) I'm only kidding. But anyways, look, that's going to wrap us up. Again, for more just, you know, Chelsea youth uh, info, obviously follow Phil. Uh, We'll continue to do our weekly updates. We'll sprinkle in some more player updates. But that is it for us this time. Uh, Again, go sub. Send it to a friend. We'd appreciate you. But until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.